I'd like to thank the Ibn-Arabi Society for inviting me to speak today and to thank all of you for coming to hear. Um, my talk is entitled Watered with One Water, Ibn-Arabi on the One and the Many. Can you all hear me? Okay. I must admit that my first reaction to the title of this symposium was one of measured opposition. Universality of vision in Ibn-Arabi? Yes, of course. It's essential. But one cannot ignore the other side of the equation, our expanding universe with its infinite theaters of divine manifestation. This is the course we navigate as we assume and shed diverse sensations, states, and stations. It is this vision that dominates human existence, a world of graded hierarchies, levels, specific phases, veils, and names, a cosmos of dualities, oppositions, complementarities, contraries, rivals, counterforces, and tensions. And it is not only on the human level that our vision is marked by multiplicity. Multiplicity is also to be found on the level of the divine names. Ibn Arabi is perhaps best known for his radical monotheism. There simply is nothing else but the real, the one. But in his vision of reality, with its constant reference to unity, the sheikh nevertheless did not present a blind eye um, to, the ever, to the world of ever-changing phenomena. In fact, he gives it the technical term ahadiyat al-kathra, the oneness of the many, as opposed to ahadiyat al-ahad or ahadiyat al-ain, the oneness of the one or the oneness of the essence. Diversity within unity is of such importance to Ibn Arabi that at one point he offers these shocking words um, assigned to God as he speaks to his servants. Do not say there is nothing but God, even if that is the case, and it is the case. Have not the intelligible levels distinguished between he is like this and he is like that? The essence is one, as you say, but in respect of one thing, he is such and such, and in respect of another thing, he is something else. The range of symbols Ibn Arabi musters to deal with this opposition within the all-encompassing unity are many, including, but in no way exhausting the repertoire, root versus branch, Quran versus Furqan, meaning versus utterance, matter versus form, ringstone versus facets, throne versus footstool, Allah versus Lord. In searching for a way to approach the subject, I reviewed them all. It was during a late December deluge that the word came, water. Water? This was something unexpected. But the more I plunged into the vast seas of Ibn Arabi's immense corpus, the more convinced I became that this symbol held a powerful clue to explaining Ibn Arabi's notions of the one and the many. The title of this paper, Watered with One Water, does not come directly from Ibn Arabi. It is a line from the Quran, Surah 13, the thunder, verse 4. The entire verse reads as follows. And in the earth are neighboring tracts, vineyards, and plowed lands, and date palms, like and unlike, which are watered with one water. And we have made some of them to excel others in fruit. Lo, herein are signs for people who have understanding. As far as I know, Ibn Arabi refers to this expression, watered with one water, only three times in the Futuhat. There may be more, but I haven't found them yet. In the first instance, Ibn Arabi says, speaking of divine intention, it is like water. Its station is that it descends or flows on the earth. The fact that the dead earth is vivified by it or that the house of a poor old woman is demolished by its descent does not belong to it essentially. 
It causes flowers that are sweet-smelling and loathsome to emerge, and it causes good fruits and disgusting ones to emerge, due to the rottenness or goodness of the mixture of the locale, or due to the rottenness or goodness of the seed. The Most High said, watered with one water, and we have made some of them to excel others in fruit. And he said, lo, herein are signs for people who have understanding. In Ibn Arabi's second use of this verse, the subject is again ranking in, in excellence, something that would seem to fly in the face of God's unity. The Sheikh explains, Since the cosmos consists of the words of God, the relation of these words to the all-merciful breath in which these words become manifest is one relation. This proves that there is no ranking of excellence within the cosmos, nor is anyone chosen because of God's pre preference of one over other things. But we see that it is but that we see that the matter is different with respect to all existing things. God says, we have honored the children of Adam, and we have ranked them with a clear ranking in excellence over many of those we created. And God says, and those messengers, some we have ranked in excellence over others. And he says, and some plants we have ranked in excellence of produce over, over others, even though they are watered with one water. There is no verse more appropriate for the ranking in excellence that actually occurs in existence than this last verse in that he says, watered with one water. Thus diversity of flavor becomes manifest from the one water by way of ranking in excellence. Verses of this sort occur often in the Quran, thereby showing the excellence of some of each kind above others. Even the Quran itself, which is the speech of God, is more excellent than other revealed books, although they are all the speech of God. Moreover, parts of the Quran itself are more excellent than other parts, although all of it is, described, is ascribed to God in that it is his speech without doubt. The third passage again draws attention to essential oneness and perceptual diversity. Pay attention to the Most High saying, it is watered with one water. The earth is one, but the tastes, fragrances, and colors differ. You say that honey is sweet and delicious, and you see that some temperaments are harmed by it. Do not find it delicious and find it bitter. Similar is the case with fragrances and colors, for we see that these differences go back to perceptions, not to the things themselves. So we see them as relationships that have no reality in themselves, except insofar as their substance is concerned. In these three exegetical passages, we see our theme clearly laid out. At root is an essential and undeniable unity. Diversity is the result of sheer accident, the effect of God's discrimination, a necessary concomitant of manifestation in form but not all accidents are equal in quality. In the passages I've read, Ibn Arabi uses the metaphor of water to describe the situation. What is it about water that makes it such an appropriate symbol for universality versus particularity? Water, we must realize, performs a function in Ibn Arabi's writing that is analogous to his treatment of Islam, the Quran, and the Prophet Muhammad. On the one hand, water is simply one of the four elements just as Islam is one of the four monotheistic religions, the Quran, one of the scriptures, and Muhammad, one of the messenger prophets. Yet all of these, unlike the other members of their species, have a universality that transcends specification. Water as an element among elements is treated often in Ibn Arabi's works in a way that conforms to general scientific notions of the times. But water, as, an, as a metaphysical principle, is something else. It is this water that stirs the imagination as a polyvalent symbol expressing many things, some of which we will discuss in this paper. It is not surprising that water has always played a central role in Islamic culture. 
for the Arabs of Muhammad's time, just as for the Jews in biblical times, and for all people for whom water is precious and scarce, including eventually, no doubt, ourselves in this day and age, society revolved around places where water could be found, wells, watering holes, oases. One's very life depended on finding and following the path to water. Hence, some of Islam's primary technical terms are water-based. Sharia, commonly translated as law, originally meant the way to the watering hole. The root of the word sabil, way, road, or path, in particular God's way, also applies to copious rain. And the many words connected to the root warada, such as wird, the prayer of private worship, warid, the inspirational thought, and warid, the jugular vein, are a veritable meditation on water. The entire cycle of water and its intimate relationship with the receptive earth is given a spiritual coloration by the sheikh. The quality of the produce depends not on the rainwater, which is entirely good, but on the quality of the land. Rainwater, he says, has a single state. It is, quote, wholesome, pure, fresh, palatable, and drinkable. Spring and river waters, on the other hand, have their source in rocks and become mingled with the blemishes from which they spring and the terrain over which they flow. The taste of water is different. Some is sweet, fresh water, some briny seawater, some foul, bitter, and viscous. Or to put it in another fashion, the color of the water is the color of the glass, as Junaid famously pronounced. This is an appealing analogy, for it sums up quite nicely the relationship between the one and the many. Water, whatever it may stand for, and as we shall see, it may stand for many things, life, knowledge, love, and so forth, water is one, and completely without attributes, in effect colorless. It is particularized and altered by the vessel or locale where it is found. As Ibn Arabi points out in his treatise on majesty and beauty, the color of water in itself is imperceptible, like vision itself. In the following part of my paper, I will discuss how Ibn Arabi uses the symbol of water in connection with some key concepts, life, knowledge, sharia, love, and purification. We begin with life. Water as life. Water symbolizes many things for Ibn Arabi. Of primary importance, however, are life and knowledge, which are intimately related. It is no coincidence that the Arabic root verb most often associated with God's bestowal of both life and knowledge is anzala or nazala, to send down, to make descend, to reveal. The Quran and rain, which is the purest of all sensibly perceived waters, are the most frequent objects of this sending down. Ibn Arabi opens his chapter on Job in the Fusus by saying, Know that the secret of life permeates water, which itself is the origin of the elements and the four supports. Thus did God make of water every living thing. Everything is living, and everything has its origin in water. In the Futuhat's magnificent chapter 198, On the Breath of the All-Merciful, is a cosmological section, taking the reader from stage to stage in creation, each stage linked with a level, a divine name, a celestial constellation, a letter, and, has me, and as many have pointed out, a prophet and chapter of the Fasus. Near the end of the levels, we find the four elements. The level corresponding to water is linked, interestingly enough, to the divine name Al-Muhyi, the vivifier. We should also point out the obvious fact that it is an element of Ibn Arabi's honor, honorific, Muhyiddin, the one who gives life to the religion. 
The prophet of the Fasus associated with the level of water in the Futuhat is John the Baptist, which makes sense. In Arabic, his name is Yahya, which means he lives. As Stephen mentioned in a talk he gave several years ago, which is now, I believe, a podcast. Is it, Stephen? <laughs> John baptizes with the water of life. The mysterious green man, Khidr, who will be discussed later in connection with knowledge, is also associated with water in its life-bestowing capacity. Ibn Arabi recounts in the Futuhat the story of this most unhistorical man. According to the sheikh, Khidr was in the army and was sent to find water for his squadron. What he found was the fountain, source, spring, essence, ein, of life. He drank from it and became immortal. Although he told his companions of the source and they ran off, ran off to seek it for themselves, and for, for themselves seems to be the operative word here, they were unable to find it, for God diverted their sight from it. Henceforth, Khidr was connected with everything green, spring-like, life-giving. Wherever he sets his foot, vegetation grows. In paradise flows the universal river of life, into which Gabriel dips his wings daily, and in which the people of the fire bathe after intercession has been made on their behalf. These latter spring back to life, just like the seedling carried along in the silt by the flood. Even if these people had not done a single good thing in their lives, when they are washed by the river of life, they are transformed into pearls. Waters of trial and death. We cannot pass on without noting the obvious fact that water is also associated with death. Recall the quintessential stories recounted in both the Bible and the Quran of Noah's generation drowned in the flood and Pharaoh and his people engulfed by the unparting of the Red Sea. Ibn Arabi explicitly associates water with trial and God's creation of life and death as trial. I quote, Since water is the root of life and of every living thing, while the relationships are subordinate to water, God makes a connection between the throne placed on the water and his creation of death and life in trial. He says, His throne is upon the water that he might try you, that is, test you. The throne consists of existent entities and non-existent relationships. God also says, Blessed be he who created, life, who created death and life, that he might try you. So life belongs to the entities and death to the relationships. End quote. Here it is clear that water itself is life and only life. It can be nothing else. Death is something entirely accidental, a sea change in relationships. Again, Ibn Arabi clarifies the nature of water in the following passage. Since water is the root of every living thing whose life is accidental, God gives to drink the one who goes straight to the water of life. If it is the giving to drink of solicitude, such as for the prophets and messengers, God gives life through it to whom he wishes. And if it is the giving, of, giving to drink of trial, it is because of the remedy that is in it. The Most High said, If they tread the straight path, we shall give them to drink of water in abundance, that we may test them thereby. So this is the giving of water as trial. End quote. I think we can see here once more that water itself is good. For the righteous, it only adds to their goodness. But for those who stand in need of a cure, the medicinal waters may not have the same sweet taste. The end result, however, is mercy and divine solicitude. Although Pharaoh physically perished, it was not before he bore witness to the existence of God in the salvi 
salvific waters that ensured his eternal spiritual life. And this was a very problematic passage that I'm about to read um, from the Fusus. Pharaoh's consolation was in the face God endowed him with when he was later drowned. God took him to himself, spotless, pure, and untainted by any taint, because he took him in the act of commitment before he could commit any sin, since submission to God erases all that has gone before it. Thus he made of him a symbol of the loving care he may bestow on whomsoever he wills, lest anyone should despair of the mercy of God. The case of the drowning of Noah's people, a people tried by water, is also treated symbolically. We will deal with this in our next section, Water as Knowledge. Water as Knowledge. Using water to signify knowledge is a time-honored and perhaps universal practice. The ancient rabbis and medieval Jewish philosophers interpreted verses such as, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye for water, from Isaiah, and my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God, Psalms 42.3, as referring to knowledge. In Ibn Arabi's writings, this analogy is ubiquitous. For the Fasus, for ex- in the Fasus, for example, he interprets the waters Moses is cast upon in his ark as the learning he acquired through the medium of, the, of his body, such as it obtains through the faculty of speculative thought, of sensation and imagination, all of which accrue to the human soul only through the existence of the elemental body. End quote. Oh, I'm beginning of a new quote. He was cast on the waters that he might acquire by these faculties all kinds of, of learning. End quote. Water, the universal solvent, dissolves. The ark, symbol of the body, resists this dissolving through its pursuit of the distinct forms of knowledge. Knowledge acquired through reflective thought and reason varies according to the individual temperament in question. This is why people disagree about a matter, or a single individual may say different things about the same thing at different times. On the other hand, divine knowledge, received directly from God's presence through revelation, has a single taste, even if the places and palates differ. Even if graded in quality, it is all good, pure, and free from admixture. This is why the prophets and saints all say the same thing about God, since the source is God's own presence. This knowledge is like pure rain, which is of one substance when it falls. In the Isfar, the story of the destruction of Noah's people is specifically linked to the intertwining notions of water and knowledge. The event takes place in the sign of cancer, a watery, unstable sign, the sign which Ibn Arabi says, uh, the sign in which God created the world. Noah's concern here is the forging of a spiritual body described in this chapter as the Ark of Salvation that will carry Noah and his companions to the next cycle of existence or world, represented by the astrological sign of Leo, a stable sign. Unable to fathom the alchemical conjunction required for this transformation, Noah's people perish. As the Sheikh says, water is like knowledge in that life comes from both with respect to the sensible and the supersensible. Therefore, Noah's people perished because of their rejection of knowledge. In the Fasus, on the other hand, Noah's people perish in the very seas of knowledge of God, something else that was quite controversial. They become, in fact, perfect Gnostics who resist Noah's assertion of God's uncompromising transcendence that excludes any mention of God's attributes such as seeing and hearing. In reality, as Noah's folk know, God is both manifest and unmanifest, 
witnessed in the forms of the cosmos and hidden as a spirit determining and animating these forms. When Noah's call comes, his people stick their fingers in their ears, refusing to hear it because it does not combine the two aspects of transcendence, tanzih, and immanence, tashbih. Noah's unbalanced call is a test, a trial, as well as a courteous gesture toward Muhammad, whose call will be the perfect mixture of tanzih and tashbih. Noah, being a divinely inspired prophet, is aware of his imperfect call, as are the people themselves. Noah knows that there is a perfection hidden in imperfection, in that nature cannot be in perfect equilibrium, or the cosmos would cease to exist. As the sheikh says in the Fasus, the act of creation, which occurs with the breaths eternally, constitutes an imbalance in nature that might be called a deviation or alteration. Nature must be in constant movement. God must be every day upon some task. By refusing to hearken to Noah's message, his people behave in a perfectly appropriate way and are rewarded by annihilation, fana, in the watery furnace, tanur, of complete knowledge. Two other notable figures are closely associated with forms of knowledge, namely Moses and Hidr. The Quranic story of Moses' encounter with the figure taken to be Hidr, although he remains unnamed in the narrative, is probably well known to you all, but here I will be emphasizing the element of water in the story. The two, as you recall, meet at the juncture of two seas. First of all, what are these two seas? The expression two seas is mentioned five times in the Quran. In chapter two of the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi quotes the Quranic verse, he hath loosed the two seas, they meet, there is a barrier, Barzakh, between them, they encroach not upon one another. Which is it of the favors of your Lord that you deny? Ibn Arabi asks, is it the sea that he joined to himself and concealed from the entities? Or is it the sea that he separated from himself and called creation? Or is it the barzakh between the two seas upon which the merciful is established? In another Quranic verse, this is um, verse 35, um, 12, the two seas are described as follows. And two seas are not, and two seas are not alike. This one is fresh, sweet, good to drink. This other, salty and bitter, and from them both you eat fresh meat and derive the ornament that you wear. Benefit, therefore, is derived from both. Water, as we have seen, is pure, essentially. Any change it undergoes is not substantial but accidental. It is always beneficial, no matter what the taste. Chidr and Moses, saint and messenger, meet at the juncture of two seas. They have already long experience with water. Chidr's discovery of the source of life has already been mentioned. He is also associated with the symbolic green sea, a vast sea of life and knowledge. Since Hedra is always associated with the color green, the green sea, the original source of which may be a prophetic hadith, mentioned in several of the sheikh's writings, immediately brings Hedra to mind. Let us turn now to Moses. Moses, as we see him in the Fasus, can certainly be classified among his fellow prophets Noah, Jonah, and Job, who are tried by water. Set in an ark by his mother, he is cast into the waters of the Nile to avoid Pharaoh's wrath. The child is thus saved from the death the other male infants of Israel suffered and is named Moses, Musa, by Ibn, uh, uh, Musa, by Pharaoh, Mu, 
meaning water, and sa, meaning tree, in Coptic, or so goes Ibn Arabi's creative etymology. I don't know Coptic, so I, you may be right. I don't know. It is later, it is later Pharaoh who is drowned in the waters of the Red Sea, while Moses and the children of Israel walk across on dry land. Moses' staff, instrument of mastery over the elements of water, having parted the sea for their passing. In the desert, Moses again uses his staff, symbol of the letter Aleph, the unifier of the letters, to strike the rock in order to provide water for his people. Twelve rivers were said to spring from that rock, each stream providing a watering place for one of the tribes. And so they meet these men of the water at the juncture of the two seas. They themselves are two seas, one a sea of knowledge pertaining to messengers, a sharia knowledge, and one a sea of knowledge pertaining to saints, a laduni knowledge. One the deliverer of a specific dispensation, the other harbinger of the unseen. In the Fasus, Ibn Arabi makes it clear that neither one of them alone could claim universal knowledge. The Quranic story is chiefly concerned with the pointing out of Moses' insufficient knowledge of what Khidr is up to, with his inexplicable and, to Moses, inexcusable behavior, the murder of a young man, the sinking of a ship with all its cargo, and the repair of a wall without compensation. So, whose water is fresh and whose is sweet? Whose is salty and whose is bitter? It is quite obvious that the knowledge that Khidr possesses from his Lord is a bitter knowledge for Moses, one he is unable to swallow. He's unable to continue with, with Khidr as he um, goes on his path. On the other hand, the scores of prescriptive laws Moses brings to his people have a medicinal taste to those who are soul sick. But the Sheikh reiterates in his chapter on purification that both Sharia knowledge and Laduni knowledge are rainwater. As he says, a fluid made fine and filtrated to an utmost clarity and refinement through ascetic dis discipline, spiritual struggle, and we might add spiritual alchemy. Water, the one in an elemental sense, can seem like many waters to the taster. Knowledge, though essentially one, can be individualized in infinite ways. As Ibn Arabi says in the Fusus, for each limb or organ there is a particular kind of spiritual knowledge stemming from one source, which is manifold in respect of the many limbs and organs, even as water, although a single reality, varies in taste according to its location some being sweet and pleasant, some being salty and brackish. In spite of this, it remains unalterably water in all conditions with all the varieties of taste. Water as Sharia. Often Ibn Arabi takes words back to their original root meaning. This is the case of the root Shin Ra Ain, whose earliest meaning was a path to water. The Sharia, in addition to being the revealed law, is, as many have pointed out, the path to the water of divine life. Some might say they're the same thing. Water, in, Arab in Ibn Arabi, is most often seen as flowing, as is God's ever-renewed manifestation in forms. As we find in Heraclitus, one can never step in the same river twice, which, of course, is echoed in the Islamic theological principle of God's new creation, Khalq Jadid, in every moment. Water does not stay still. It is always in flux. Movement, after all, is life. Without movement, imbalance, there is no bringing to life. Water is movement. And movement is part of the Sufi path, movement toward knowledge, movement toward the sources of water. 
The path to water, the Sharia, is a path of action, practice, based on a revealed knowledge that descends like rain from a pure source and is received in purified receptacles, the messengers, prophets, and friends of God. The Sufi is ever thirsty for this knowledge, ever seeking to be quenched with the waters of divine life. It is a thirst to be cultivated rather than satisfied. As Rumi says, where there are questions, answers will be given. Where there are ships, water will flow. Spend less time seeking water and acquire thirst. Then water will gush from above and below. Or as Ibn Arabi himself proclaims, love is a drink with no quenching. One of the veiled ones said, I drank a drink and have never again been thirsty. Abu Yazid al-Bistami replied, The man of God is he who, is he who has drunk the seas and his tongue still thirsts for more. Images of the straight path and movement along it toward eternal, uh, eternal life are constellated in the Sheikh's various treatments of the Quranic Surah of Hud and its eponymous Arab prophet. Most of the passages having to do with Hud in Ibn Arabi's writings combine the elements of water and straightness, as in Sirat al-Mustaqim, the straight path of the Fatiha, the path of practice that leads to eternal life. As Ibn Arabi says in the Futuhat's chapter on straightness, which is replete with references to Hud, since water has become a root of every living thing whose life is accidental, God gives to drink the one who goes straight to the water of life. There is more than one path to the water. There is more than one way of approaching the watering hole. The watering hole, mashrab, is where the Gnostic goes to drink knowledge. Each tribe knows its mashrab. As the Quran says, all peoples know their drinking place and realize their own method and their manner. This is Quran 7, 160. The original reference is to the 12 tribes of Israel in the desert. The watering holes are presumably 12, but ultimately may have their source, according to Ibn Arabi, in the four rivers of paradise, sometimes named as Nile, Euphrates, Sihan, and Jehan. Ibn Arabi assigned each of the, of the four rivers to um, the three gardens of paradise, which he calls the Garden of the Elites, the Garden of Inheritance, and the Garden of Deeds, giving the twelve watering holes, or here streams, appearing from the rock of Moses for the twelve tribes, each one knowing their drinking place. As he says, one is the river of unbrackish water, this is all based on a Quranic verse, by the way, or unchanging water, it is the science of life. The second is the river of wine, which is the science of states. The third is the river of honey, which is the science of various kinds of revelation. From this one, the angels become thunderstruck when they hear the revelation, just as a drinker of wine becomes intoxicated. The fourth is the river of milk, which is the science of the secrets and results from spiritual exercises and God-fearingness. Two of these drinks, wine and milk, were offered to Muhammad when he was on his night journey. He chose milk, drinking it beyond quenching until it came out of his fingernails. Knowledge is gained in every garden from its rivers, commensurate with the reality of that garden and commensurate with the source of the configurations in it. For their sources differ, the knowledges differ, the gardens differ, and the tastes differ. I will have some water. <laughs> Ah, yes, <laughs> it is indeed a source of life. 
Um, water is love. Existence is movement. Existence is water. Existence is knowledge. But existence is also love. We are reminded of the lines of the Hadith that Ibn Arabi is so fond of citing. In God's words, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known. So I created the world so I could be known. Love on the part of the creator precedes creation's love of the real. All movement is through love, says the Sheikh in the chapter on Moses. Life, love, and knowledge are intertwined. God knows himself in form as he lovingly pours life on his infinitely successive planes of manifestation. The connection between water and love could not be made clearer than in Ibn Arabi's answer to his predecessor, predecessor Al-Tirmidhi's question, what is the chalice of love? The answer should now come as no surprise. The chalice of love is the heart of the lover that fluctuates from state to state just as God, lover and beloved, is each day upon some task. In a variation of Junaid's famous statement, the color of the water is the color of the glass, the sheikh tells us, the lover is like the clear and pure glass goblet which undergoes constant variation according to the variation of the liquid within it. The color of the lover is the color of the beloved. In chapter 178, the lengthy chapter on love in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi recounts a delightful story about a lover who visited his sheikh one day. His sheikh spoke to the man about love and the lover proceeded to melt until he was completely dissolved in a pool of water beside him. Ibn Arabi cites one of his favorite proof texts, We Made from Water Every Living Thing, adding that the man's original life was through water and he was returning to his source. The story, says Ibn Arabi, shows that the lover is the one through whom, through whom everything is given life. Water is purification. This is our last example. Perhaps no other ritual has the possibility of bringing these metaphoric and rather abstract notions of water into actual concrete realization than ablution. Ablution, as we know, is a precondition for a number of Islamic ritual practices, chief of which is prayer. Ibn Arabi considers purification by water one of the fundamental pillars of Islam. Hence, it is the first of a series of chapters in the Futuhat that deal with the legal determinations and their esoteric aspects. Ibn Arabi calls ablution with water, whether partial or general, purification with the secret of life. Its purpose is to witness the living, the sustaining reality. Water, he says, in itself is spirit and it bestows life through its very essence. In contrast to wudu, which is a partial ablution of hands and arms, head and feet, each member discussed in turn by Ibn Arabi and related to specific qualities such as power and modesty, Rosso is a complete ablution of the entire body. It is necessary following a number of acts or, condi or conditions, including se sexual intercourse. Why is this the case? To begin with, although semen is a kind of water, it is a product of the blood, hence it is not simple water. Semen and the water for ablution confront each other, and the addition of a spiritual agent in the form of intention is required for purification to be effective. The two properties, sensible and suprasensible, combine to combat the impurity acquired through physical union. Going beyond the physical aspects of purity and impurity, Ibn Arabi has written extensively about love in all of its dimensions. Physical love, at its purest, is a reflection of love for God. 
Nonetheless, union with another human being places one in a state of possible exile from two things, exile from God and exile from one's essential station of servanthood, in that one takes on 150 attributes of God in the act, each one of which demands purification. Physical union is complete absorption, as the sheikh says. The passion of love spreading through the whole body is like water permeating wool, or rather like the permeation of color in the colored. The emission of seminal waters envelops the person in such pleasure that he becomes possibly annihilated from his Lord. This satisfaction, this saturation and quenching, carries with it the risk of awakening divine jealousy if the true object of love is misunderstood. Hence, complete evolution is required to restore the proper relationship of God and the human being. To conclude, William Chittick has pointed out the unspoken assumption that lies at the very root of the word Tawhid. It is that contrary to its occasional translation as unity or oneness, the word demands by its form a positing, an asserting, a declaring of God's oneness. This is not the initial stance of the spectator. It is not a given. It comes in the face of everything we sense, feel, and think. As Chittick says, Tawhid does not begin with unity since that needs to be established. Rather, it begins with the recognition of diversity and difference. The integrated vision that Tawhid implies must be achieved on the basis of a recognized multiplicity. As Ibn Arabi says in his chapter on Hud and the Fusus, for the believers and men of spiritual vision, it is the creation that is surmised and the reality that is seen and perceived, while in the case of those not in those two categories, it is the reality who is surmised and the creation that is seen and perceived by the senses. The latter are as the salty, bitter water, while the former are as the sweet, pleasant water, fit to drink. End quote. Thus, for people of spiritual tasting, the normal perception of the relation God to the world is reversed. To our everyday senses, the world appears real and God an object of faith at best. But for the elite spiritual masters, God is the reality and the creation can only be surmised. For these adepts, the water can only be sweet since it comes entirely from one source, the real. For others, the waters are muddied, adulterated, salty, bitter, anything but good to drink mixed as they are with the impurities of our illusions and attachments. It is vital to preserve the vision with two eyes or the taste with many tongues. Unified vision, yes. Single origin water, yes. But we must also revel in and give thanks for the sights, sounds, and tastes of God's infinite manifest manifestation in form. Unity and diversity, though undeniably contradictory, must be asserted simultaneously. The same breath passes through the trumpet of Winton Marsalis and my tone-deaf downstairs neighbor. <laughs> the same wind crosses the swamp and the rose garden. The same light shines through the windows of Chartres Cathedral and the cells of Guantanamo Bay Prison. It is the famous statement of Al-Kharaz, I only came to know God through the bringing together of opposites. The intellect cannot deal with this paradox paradox, but symbols such as water can speak to the imagination and give form to something the heart understands and acknowledges. Through reference to such symbols as water, which though one is many, we can come to see this unfathomable mystery in a way we could never do through mere assertion of coincidentia appositorum. 
It has been said that the 20th century began with wars for oil, but that the 21st century will see wars for water. Or, as Mark Twain quipped, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting over. <laughs> He's more right than he knows. <laughs> Perhaps in a symbolic sense, this has already begun, as rival tribes stake claim to their water source and vehemently defend it as the only one. It behooves us, then, to keep in mind that we are all watered with one pure water. Indeed, 70% of our universal human configuration is water, and that it is only the additional 30% that may pollute this pure source. Thank you.